It's a real pleasure to be here with David Packman, a partner at Venrock. David has very graciously agreed to speak at Latticework 2017, taking place on September 7th at the Yale Club of New York, exploring the subject of intelligent investing in a changing world. David, thank you for speaking at the conference, and also thank you for being here right now with me. Thanks, my pleasure to be here. It's quite amazing to be here in the office of Venrock. By way of background, Intel was one of Venrock's first investments funded the year Venrock was formed in 1969. Venrock led Apple's first venture round in 1978 and held a board seat for nearly 20 years. David, I'd love to hear a bit more about Venrock's history and your personal journey, how you became a partner. The origin of Venrock actually dates even farther back than that. Lawrence Rockefeller in the late 30s observed that it was pretty much impossible for an entrepreneur to get a bank loan. There's really no way to raise capital. But coming from a history of entrepreneurship, he wanted to enable more of it. And so he began the practice of investing some of the Rockefeller family capital into some early transportation companies, since that was the domain he knew the best. He invested in uh, Eastern Airlines, McDonnell Douglas aircraft, basically consumers of fuel. And that went quite well for him. And so over the course of the 40s and 50s and early 60s, it was an informal mechanism of creating, I think, what many of us refer to now as venture investing. In 1969, officially Venrock was formed, but it really was a continuation of the practice of high-risk equity capital going into startups. And then you picked up from there with Intel, Apple, and a bunch of tech and healthcare companies. Now Venrock looks and behaves a lot like many traditional VCs. We have uh, multiple LPs as opposed to a single-family LP, which is what Venrock was at its origin. And uh, we are largely early stage investors in tech and healthcare, and we hope to back some of the most important and iconic companies that'll be around for decades going forward. The sort of main theme of what we're trying to do is enable entrepreneurs with dramatically powerful visions that are unlikely to succeed, support them and help them realize a dream, you know, to change the world, to make the world better, to invent something novel, to make a market more efficient, to create something. And we think that's one of the most noble undertakings in so much as this is the largest mechanism for wealth creation in the country. It is um, an important mechanism for markets to generate jobs and a great way to make the world better. So that's why we're here. I started life as a computer science engineer and worked at Apple for a number of years in California and met an incredible group of people at Apple and really started to appreciate the value of working with extraordinary thinkers, people who believed that technology could be a force for transformation of markets or products, and that putting the customer first is a great way to compete. So I spent a much time at Apple. After Apple, I partnered with a few other folks that I met there and did a few different startups, largely in the digital music space. It was a time when music and the internet were colliding and uh, music was one of the first media types to be transformed by that transition from atoms to bits. After that, after three different startups, I joined Venrock about nine years ago and I've been a partner here since then, focusing on early stage internet companies. I have a quote in front of me from Michael Dubin, the founder of Dollar Shave Club, which I'd like to read. Quote, I appreciate Venrock's drive to win. The firm has been a pioneer across many sectors and their continued focus on novel approaches to massive markets has made them great. Could you unpack the second half of that quote? 
their continued focus on novel approaches to massive markets has made Venrock great. What does that mean in your words? A lot of times when people ask VCs, what do they look for in a company? You hear a similar refrain, and it, we're no different here, team market product. First, you're evaluating, is the team approaching this problem extraordinary in some way? Do they have some incredible vision or mission to succeed? Because there's gonna be a huge number of setbacks and things that go wrong, and they have to have some drive that's unyielding that's gonna get them through those setbacks, right? To sort of maneuver around them. We call it running through walls. Market, you have to invest in markets. Our view is you have to invest in markets that are really large. It's much easier to build a big company in a large market. And it's good to invest in markets that are undergoing some tectonic shift, some change, usually driven by a technological innovation. Then we're looking at the product. What is it that's novel or different about this approach? So I think in that statement from Michael, we're looking for a team who has a focus on novel approaches to massive markets. So they're going to try to do something reasonably or meaningfully different that others haven't tried before that's unlikely to succeed, and they're going after some giant market. And it's that recipe of a great team into a really large and changing market with a novel approach that can produce some of the greatest wins. As we sit here in mid-2017, how do you begin to deconstruct the phrase intelligent investing in a changing world. I like to read books on the way humans think. I'm reading uh, Eric Bernopsen's latest book from MIT. It's called uh, Machine Platform Crowd. And the first half of it is a rerun of um, Dan Kahneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And you can't help but be reminded about how fallible we are as humans and how we make decisions, and how terrible we are at predicting the future. There's just a huge amount of data that we're just not good at it. And this is in the context of, you know, sort of system one, where you make a really quick decision, a gut decision about something and how that's actually usually wrong. And system two about it when you do thoughtful, more analytical work to try to come up with a point of view. So I think about this phrase intelligent investing that you've got here. And um, I don't really know exactly what that means. Obviously, we all would strive to be intelligent when we make investment decisions. But for me, what drives, certainly we're, there's a changing world ahead of us. The, the most dramatic change, rate of change is accelerating, and I think the next five to 10 years will be disrupted and churned and will experience dramatic change far more than even the last 10 years have. But how do you invest in that world? And, and I think the, the most important way I approach it is you have to have some non-consensus view. You have to have a view that's different than what everyone else is thinking about the future you're probably not going to be right because most of us aren't right at predicting the future. But if you're going along with what everyone else is thinking, you're almost certain to not be making a great bet. You won't find some outsized returns if you're just following the herd. But in order to make great returns, you have to hold a non-consensus view of the way the future will arrive, and you also have to be right. And I think that's the challenge that I wake up every day to try to figure out. What am I seeing that's different than what everyone else is seeing? What am I believing that others are not believing? And can I find an entrepreneur who believes something similar and is uh, barking on a path to go try to create that future? I'd love to dwell on a changing world element. What do you believe clearly is changing? And what do you think with decent confidence will not change? 
Well, certainly AI is the greatest force of change that's going to disrupt society and so much of the world we live in over the next 10 to 20 years. The combination of AI, automation, robotics will reduce the need for somewhere between 30 and 45% probably of the existing labor pool, at least for the jobs that we do today. Now, typically when we have a transformation that big, a new technology that big, it creates all sorts of new employment opportunities, all sorts of new jobs and new companies, and that's what we're excited about. But there's gonna be a mega disruption as many of the automatable jobs get automated by AI robotics automation. So that's gonna be one of the most dramatically changing worlds we've ever experienced when not just blue collar, but a significant number of white collar jobs are blown up by machines. And we've got a labor force that's gonna to have to adjust to that, which I do not think I've heard a great answer to. Certainly for our kids in the future, who can train and be educated differently for this world, I think the future is bright for them because I think there'll be incredible opportunity created by this. But that's going to change the world in a big way. Your question about what's not going to change, I think there are certain elements of human nature that are consistent. I think a little bit about, as I mentioned, decision-making. I notice a lot of people have strong points of view about things they really don't know very much about and have a certainty and, and this sort of a cognitive bias about the way the world should be, even though there's just not any data to really support that view. That's a sort of human trait because we don't like uncertainty. And so we fill in these gaps about the way the world should be by telling ourselves that it's gonna be this way. And of course, that's what creates investment opportunity, right? When people believe something that's probably not going to be true, but you've thought differently about the way it will be. So I think a bunch of human nature will stay the same but I think the economic foundation of the way we build companies and build products is gonna change dramatically because we're gonna use technology to make a lot more decisions than we do today. When reflecting on horses versus automobiles, it might've been hard to identify the winning car brand in hindsight, but buggy whips got buggy whipped and you could identify the losers. How do you reflect on that in the current world? One of the core beliefs about technology venture capital is that the new entrants have a strong possibility of disrupting the incumbents, even when the incumbents know what's happening to them. And that's typically for a few reasons. One, it's because large companies, particularly ones that have been around for a long time, have a hard time maintaining a culture of innovation and fast movement and change. They like to keep doing what they're doing, like to preserve the status quo. And they also tend to discount heavily the forces that are being pushed upon them. in just the same way we were just talking about, they deny that things can be a big deal until it's too late. You saw it with BlackBerry, co-CEOs deny that the iPhone was going to be transformative. Everything about the iPhone was different. They didn't agree with that and they rode the company in the ground. You saw Gillette fiercely deny that Dollar Shave Club was having any impact, that Gillette's razors were much better and people wanted a better razor and would pay any price for it until they lost 20% of their market share. And now Nelson Peltz is in a proxy fight to try to change the board of the company, largely because they missed this transformation from multi-tier retail to direct-to-consumer selling. In the auto industry today, you have automotive brands that know that the future is autonomous vehicles and probably ride-sharing services. And they're making some bets around it but they also, on the other side of their mouth, deny that electrification is really gonna happen. And they 
don't fully invest in electric cars, even though I think we believe very strongly that that will change the entire auto industry, the combination of those three. So even when they know it's coming, I think it's really hard for them to adapt to these totally different models. The auto industry sues Tesla for trying to sell direct, even though we all know selling cars direct to consumers without a haggling price is so much better than buying through a conflicted dealer who is value destructive in the process. So we see this over and over and over again. There's a great example in the same book I just referenced about the shift from steam engines in factories to electrification. It didn't seem that big a deal. Oh, instead of using a steam engine, we'll just use electric power to power our machines. But what really, the steam engine in factories used to be like located in the basement and you had to you know, move its power generation capability to distribute it out to each local machine. But with electrification, you could put a motor in every device, which vastly changed the way factories could operate. But folks who operated steam-powered factories just saw electricity as, well, well, just still have the same machines, but I'll power them by electricity. But the new entrant said, well, no, no, this totally changes everything. We can have lots of small machines, totally decentralized. And it destroyed the industrial trusts as a result of it. Over and over again, we see the same thing. And so I think that is a repeatable phenomenon. And our goal is to find the disruptors who are going to take a new path to market based on some change that the incumbents, even though they see it coming, won't embrace in the same way. I have in front of me a series of papers from 2012, 2014, 2016, detailing Dollar Shave Club, point in time, your direct words, what was non-consensus and what was disrupted? Well, at the time, it was non-consensus to invest in Dollar Shave Club because most people believed how will you be able to disrupt Gillette? They have 70% market share. They will just copy you or do the same thing you're doing, or Amazon will enter the market, and you can't really differentiate with a razor business. What I think people missed is, first of all, in the, in the razor business, there's scarcity on the supply side. There really are only five razor factories in the world. Dollar Shave Club had an exclusive with one, and that made the second best razors in the world. Some would argue the best, but objectively, probably the number two in quality, which was good enough to go direct to consumers with a much more convenient model that had much better value. It was lower price, a third the price of Gillette. Gillette had been overcharging for a long time, built an incredible business, but they also built a huge cost structure that was used to that. And they got really good at selling through retail and advertising on TV. But with the rise of social networks, you didn't have to be good on selling on TV anymore because no one watches commercials anymore. And Selling through retail, you don't have to do anymore. You can sell direct. By the way, physical retail is dying anyway, so why do you want to be good at that? So the two things the company was so good at became less and less relevant. Dollar Shave Club comes along, says, we've got a lower price model. We've got an inclusive membership, high convenience, sell you lots of other products. Just smarter. It's smarter for guys to shop this way. And millions of consumers agreed with them. So I think Gillette was very late in adapting to this. Now they've had to, you know, they sued us, they, they laughed at us, now they've lowered their prices 20%, and now their entire corporation's involved in a proxy fight for missing it. So they just reacted too slowly and never built up any of the core capability that they needed. Circling a bit deeper on the uh, July 19th, 2016 essay you wrote, you uh, outlined your key investment criteria for the space. I'm yep. curious, uh, if those criteria remain relevant they today, absolutely do. share with us what those criteria are. I have a thesis on consumer products investing. 
consumer products in our mind are just companies that create physical products that are sold to consumers. There are a lot of new companies coming to market. Everything from you know men's and women's apparel brands to toasters. A lot of new folks come into market with innovative consumer products going up against a lot of legacy incumbents. But for us, just because it's a new brand and you're going direct to consumer is not sufficient. Our view is we've got five or six criteria for the space. One is that products need to be highly differentiated or there needs to be some scarcity of supply. If it's easy for someone else to copy you, like let's say you're making some awesome new pants, you might get a lot of customers that are interested in it and sell a bunch of pants but a lot of other people can make pants. There's no scarcity there, and it's not a typically hard product to differentiate around. Whereas something like Nest, which built a new thermostat, a premium thermostat, would take Honeywell at least four years to start to copy that product, highly differentiated product. We also don't want these products, categories that can be Amazon, because Amazon is 50% of all online sales. They'll grow beyond that, and they are entering many consumer products categories with Amazon Basics, with their own brands. So you need to be in product categories that they're unlikely to enter. You wouldn't do batteries, for instance, right? We like zero-sum markets. That's markets where if you commit to buy my product, you aren't gonna buy my competitor's product. So when you buy Dollar Shave Club's razor, you stop buying Gillette's. It makes the challenger more strategic because not only are they succeeding, but they're putting the hurt on an incumbent. It doesn't always take zero-sum markets to succeed, but I think it's an attribute that can make for a better exit. We like categories where the incumbents are still stuck in the past. They sell through multi-channel distribution. They don't know who their customers are. Their customers are Walmart or Dwayne Reed or, or Target. They actually don't know who their users are. They don't know who their customers are. They have no relationship with them. We think that's a huge disadvantage for the incumbents. You have to have a direct relationship with consumers in a world shaped by social media. We like categories where incumbents are heavily dependent on broadcast advertising, right? That's their expertise. They're great at TV ads. We just don't think that's super relevant anymore. No one watches TV, no one sees ads. And we like two other attributes. We like categories where the CEOs, the incumbents are effectively non-founders. That is that the incumbent's been around for a long enough time that the founders either left or is dead. (laughs) And now there are professional CEOs that run these companies. They're great CEOs, but they often are risk averse, Their incentives are set up not to significantly self-disrupt, and they will try to maintain the status quo when push comes to shove. And lastly, we like products that get better over time through the use of gathering data. Like the Nest thermostat looks like a thermostat, but it's really a supercomputer on your wall that's connected to the internet, that's got a bunch of sensors in it, that's streaming the data back up to cloud computing, computers that are making some decisions about Uh, the environment in your home and how you like it. And the product just gets smarter and better over time. You're less likely to change it out. You're likely to be delighted by the fact that the product just gets smarter. So that's a set of criteria we use to look at consumer products. In the uh, time we have left, I'd love to understand and explore why you agreed to speak at Latticework 2017. What is motivating you to share your wisdom? And what could we as a community offer you that could be value add? Well, I think I'm just looking to be supportive of the event and to share what limited understanding and wisdom I've built up as an investor over nine years. I still feel like I have tons to learn. One of the ways I learn best is by trying to teach, Um, putting together some semi or reasonably coherent point of view on a topic is um, a great way to be intellectually honest with yourself and to see if your argument holds up or if your point of view can withstand some public scrutiny. So I think it's a method I use to learn and think through things. And I think it's great to give back, to share, hopefully improve other people's points of view about 
investing in tech venture capital. What type of feedback from the audience of this podcast could be needle moving to you? Well, for me, I'm really in the business of trying to meet extraordinary people with great ideas, people that want to build some great company or disrupt something or where they're looking for partners who can help them take on a grand challenge that's likely to be really hard and probably has a reasonable probability of failing. And they want some folks along for the ride who believe in them and will support them through those hard times and sees the big picture, sees the goal and wants to help them help them get there. So I'm looking to meet those folks and hopefully there'll be some listening to this or some in the audience. What's the best way to, for people to reach you? Yeah, I'm totally on every social media channel there is. You can find me on Twitter at Pacman and tweet at me. I'd be happy to talk to people. Or my email address is on the website. I'm easy to get in touch with. I'd love to also uh, mention your personal website, please. Can oh, you... Pacman.com. Yeah, P-A-K-M-A-N. Or just send me an email, DP at Venrock. Happy to talk. David, again, we cherish the time you carved out for us. It's a real privilege to learn from you. We look forward to seeing you again in September at the Yale Club of New York. And uh, very much appreciate your intellectual generosity. Thank you. Thanks, Shai. Hello, this is Shai speaking. With a blank sheet of paper, we set out to design a platform that truly has a reason to exist. We began with five building blocks. One, great people. Two, purposeful interactivity. Three, first-hand perspective. Four, intellectual honesty. And five, shared learning. We have laid the foundation for something beautiful. Latticework 2017 brings together individuals from around the globe to unpack the many angles of intelligent investing in a changing world. We are learning more about challenger brands, about China, and about disruptive innovation. We are case studying the past in an effort to better navigate the future. We are exploring what is changing and also what is not. Explore the Latticework podcast series via the link at latticework.com. And also, let's meet one another, not just you and I, the collective one another, 100 of us handpicked. Apply to participate in Latticework 2017 at latticework.com, taking place on September 7th in New York City for a full day of fresh insights and new friendships. I hope to see you there.